Uh, my name is Taylor McCulloch. I'm Senior Fellow in North American Studies at the uh, UCN Institute of the Americas, uh, and I'm in charge of the Canadian program. Just before I introduce uh, Damien, uh, I'm just going to ask uh, or introduce, first of all, Christos Siros, who's the uh, Argent General for Quebec in London, uh, and uh, for him to say a few words, should he wish to do so. Thank you very much, Tony. Pleasure to see you. Uh, such a full house here tonight for French-Canadian loyalism. That, I must say, <laughs> grabbed my interest right away. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to first of all thank Tony and uh, UCL and the Institute of the Americas for all the work that they've done and this being the fifth Quebec uh, lecture. Uh, for us, it becomes a bit of a highlight of the academic season at the Quebec government office because it's an opportunity to sort of meet people that are interested in, in Canada and more particularly in Quebec. Uh, and uh, explore topics you know, of interest, sometimes very relevant to today's issues, other times of historical importance, but always stimulating and always uh, very fascinating. Uh, Professor Belanger uh, has spent uh, recently about a month or so at the British Library in a new fellowship program that was established between the British Library and the Quebec government and basically the, uh, the, the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale uh, that allows people and researchers from Quebec to spend uh, some time looking at some of the wonderful archives that exist here in the British uh, Library. Britain having had a bit of a role in sort of, <laughs> a bit of a role in, uh, in Quebec's history and uh, certainly uh, the topic tonight is, is uh, uh, an interesting twist that we never really look at uh, from Quebec's point of view but I'm certain that it's also had a role in influencing and shaping some of the debates that went on at the time, and I think the historical context will explain a lot of the notion of what today may be seen as a bit strange, that French Canadians were loyal to the British crown, uh, given everything that we've uh, lived through over the last 50 or 60 years, but uh, uh, history has a way of sort of uh, establishing the basis for a lot of today's debates, so uh, it's going to be fascinating to, to listen to some of this. Uh, Professor Belanger uh, has, has worked with us a little bit uh, with the Quebec government office, uh, gave us a little bit of a history lesson as well because he established the fact that uh, there have been agents général or agent generals uh, from Quebec uh, to Great Britain and to London in particular since what, the late 1800s or late 1700s? Yeah. 1763. There you go, 1763 after all of this. So I guess within the context perhaps of this French-Canadian loyalism, uh, people came over here to establish uh, that link that uh, would allow uh, Quebec to benefit from some of the largesses of uh, what at the time was a great imperial power. Uh, that having been said, it's a pleasure for me to be here and uh, really, Tony, thank you again for uh, sort of working so hard to, 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 to bring Quebec to the knowledge and, and the sort of uh, awareness of more and more people here in Great Britain. Uh, thank you for this and for Mr. Belanger. Bonne, uh, bonne séance. Merci beaucoup. I would just like to uh, thank both uh, Christophe and Cyrus, the uh, Argent General here in London. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure working with you for the couple of years now you've been here, isn't it? And we always get on very well with uh, the Delegation Générale and, and with the staff there, and Brigitte who's been here a bit longer than a couple of years. Uh, always a great pleasure to work with you and, and other colleagues at Quebec Government House. Um, so, for this evening's uh, event, um, uh, Damien is what I would call a friend of the Institute, insofar as he's given a, at least one previous talk here, I think a seminar next door, and has attended other events, so he's well known to me and, and to UCL and, and to the Canadian Studies uh, community here in London. Um, so, in terms of his talk uh, this evening, uh, Damien is uh, Associate Professor of Canadian History at the University of Ottawa. Uh, he uh, did his degrees at uh, University de Montréal and at uh, McGill. Uh, he's uh, authored various articles uh, and book chapters and so on. Uh, he's the co-founder of MENS, uh, Revue d'Histoire, Intellectuelle et Culturelle, uh, and he's uh, authored two uh, monographs, Prejudice and Pride, Canadian Intellectuals Confront the United States, uh, 
uh, and one that's just uh, about to come out, a biography of Thomas uh, Chappé, the historian, Quebec historian. And he's currently working on a history of loyalism of French Canada. And it's obviously the broad theme of uh, French-Canadian loyalism that he's about to look at uh, this, this evening. It's Rise and Fall, so please give a very warm welcome to Damien Bélanger. Thank you, uh, Tony. Merci, uh, Monsieur le Délégué Général. Uh, I'd also uh, like to thank uh, UCL and the Institute of the Americas for having uh, invited me here. Uh, it, it is an honor. I'm glad to hear that I'm a friend. Uh, you've certainly been very friendly uh, towards me. Um, I'd also like to thank my own university, the University of Ottawa, for having granted me the sabbatical, which allows me to come here, uh, maybe not at the drop of a hat, but you know, with not a terrible amount of notice. Um, sabbaticals are, are wonderful things. I don't know if they'll still exist in 10 years. <laughs> but since they exist now, I'm enjoying uh, mine. I've uh, devoted much of my sabbatical year uh, to studying the doctrine of loyalism in French Canada. I, I hope to publish a book on the subject. Uh, but when I explain the subject to uh, people in Quebec, including to colleagues in Quebec, it's often met with a measure of uh, disbelief. Uh, many people regard it as preposterous that French Canadian uh, thought once encompassed vigorous expressions of loyalty to Britain. Uh, and this incredulity is hardly surprising given that Quebec historiography devotes very little place to loyalism. Uh, the doctrine disappeared from French Canadian thought in the 20th century and it has left more or less no trace in contemporary debates. Uh, now, to the extent uh, that loyalism has generated some scholarly discussion, these debates have tended to center on the loyalty of the Roman Catholic Church, most specifically. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, some writers insisted that the church have collaborated with the British authorities. Uh, a term which I don't have to tell you had acquired a very sinister connotation during the Second World War. Um, in the context of Quebec's white revolution in the 60s, anti-clerical charges found a very ready audience in Quebec. Um, and so there was this sense, to the extent that there was much writing about loyalism, it was about the clergy collaborating with a foreign force, a foreign occupation, if you will. Uh, scholars have since formulated a more nuanced vision of clerical loyalism. Uh, they tend to insist today, again, when they write about it, on its strategic dimension, arguing that the clergy cooperated with the British under duress. Um, but many scholars also note that clerics often felt a very strong affinity for monarchical government. Uh, the work of these scholars of religion, typically, uh, points to the complexity of the loyalist phenomenon, which could be motivated as much by coercion as by sincere conviction. And I want to develop this idea further uh, by examining why loyalism emerged in French Canada, how its leading arguments became in fact commonplace ideas, and why it eventually withered away. Um, I also wish to examine the doctrines of various proponents and not merely those who wore a cassock, so not merely uh, clerical proponents of loyalism. So what is this uh, concept, loyalism? Uh, now, you have to examine first its root, loyalty, okay, the idea of being loyal. Uh, in, the con in the context of French Canada, loyalty implies a faithfulness to the crown. In the 18th and 19th centuries, it could be active, expressing itself through a willingness to uphold and defend British rule. Or it could be passive, which instead involved eschewing movements that sought to undermine British power. So in this sense, both the Canadiens who fought against the invading Americans in 1775-1776 and those who merely refused to join or aid the rebels can equally be considered to have expressed their loyalty to the crown. So that's sort of loyalty within the context of French Canada. 
Loyalism, by contrast, is a positive doctrine. It's the reasoned expression of the idea of loyalty. And in French Canada, it expressed a, a sincere devotion to the crown, to British rule, and to British institutions. And of course, the crown is, to some extent, also an institution, so there's some overlap uh, there. It rested first and foremost on the idea that the 1760 British conquest of New France had been providential in nature, that it had been ordained by God, and that it had proven to be a fortunate event. Uh, loyalists also reasoned that uh, the British authorities had acted with reasonable munificence and that British political institutions were superior not only to the various republican systems that arose in continental Europe and also in the Americas, but also that British institutions were superior to those of pre-revolutionary France. So in a sense, we were lucky to be conquered, if you will. Um, now, of course, there is the idea of loyalty and loyalism in English-speaking Canada as well. And it's important to note that the nature and the intensity of loyalism differed significantly in English and French-speaking Canada. As historian, historian Donald Lowry notes, French Canadians can be counted among what he calls the ethnic outsiders of the British Empire. Their loyalism could not contain an ethnic and racial element, and its religious component could not be shared on, could not be based on a shared faith. And so there was, so occasionally in English-speaking Canada, you do hear people bring up this idea that there's a racial affinity based on French Canadians apparently being Norman, Okay, but you don't really find that much in French-Canadian loyalism. Okay? Uh, so it, loyalism, it couldn't be based on a shared faith or have a racial element. Uh, French-Canadians could and did participate in the British colonial project in Canada and outside of Canada, but they only did so in an ancillary sense, and they were ultimately far more likely to suffer than to perpetrate British colonialism. And yet expressions of loyalty to Britain were common in French-Canadian thought and writing for well over a century. Even Henri Bourassa, the consummate anti-imperialist, admired British institutions and regarded the British conquest as ultimately beneficial for Canada, for French Canada more particularly. Uh, the Roman Catholic clergy was the first group in French Canada to formulate loyalist principles. They did this out of both conviction and realism. Uh, Catholic doctrine advocates the submission to God's will and to legitimate authority. The Roman Catholic Church interpreted the British conquest as divinely ordained, and once it became apparent that <coughs> London would not deport the Canadian population or outlaw Catholicism, the clergy began to preach submission to the British crown. The clergy also viewed the power of the British authorities as divinely sanctioned. And in Catholic doctrine, authority is, by san authority is sanctioned by God, and to refuse to submit to legitimate authority is to refuse submission to God. And in fact, even before the formal session of Canada, the higher clergy had already called upon their flock to submit to British rule in Quebec. The uh, British conquer New France by force of arms in late 1760, but the formal session, the formal transfer of power between France and Britain only occurs in 1763. So for a little under three years, Quebec is occupied, but is not let yet legally part of the British Empire. And yet, even before this occurs, even before the session occurs, there are already calls for loyalty to Britain, or at least to submit to British rule. And in a magma dated February 14th, 1762, so a full year before that session actually occurs, a magma is, a, in French, the, the, term, the verb mardi means to order, so it's sort of an, it's either a statement of church policy or a clerical order. So in 1762, 
Jean-Olivier Briand, who you see here, he's the future bishop of Quebec. And he is, I wouldn't say that he gets appointed bishop of Quebec by the British authorities, but he certainly is appointed with the blessing of the British authorities. But he's not yet the bishop. He is the vicar general and future bishop at this point. Okay? So he's vicar general of Quebec. And he issues a magma a year before the formal session of Canada occurs, where he quotes from the epistles of Peter and Paul, which were often cited by the clergy to justify British rule. And he says, sort of freely translating here, the god of war, if you will, disposes as he wishes of crowns. And this god has decided that Canada is going to fall under the domination of his Britannic majesty. And he's going to remind his flock that St. Peter, in his first epistle, ordered the faithful to submit to their king and to all of those who participate in his authority. And he also noted that St. Paul had called upon Christians to honor and respect their sovereigns. There was little doubt in Briand's mind that British rule was divinely ordained and thus legitimate. And he ordered that prayers for the king said during Mass be specifically amended to refer to King George. So this is a year before Quebec is formally in the British Empire. So that part in Mass where you pray for the king, now you're going to officially and formally pray for King George III. Um, so he believes at the base that there is a theological imperative towards loyalty. But the clergy's loyalty also reflected the Roman Catholic Church's vulnerability in the face of colonial power. After the British conquest, the institution's legal status was in limbo. The British governor interfered with clerical appointments and various restrictions were placed on clerical recruitment and on the relations between the church in Quebec and the church in Rome and also in France. Uh, also, the church's title over its extensive property was not fully recognized by the colonial authorities. And so the church is going to preach uh, loyalty to Britain in part because it feels it has to ingratiate itself to the colonial authorities in the hope that London would eliminate or at least mitigate the various measures that constrained Catholicism in Quebec. Many clerics also reason that anything less than open loyalty would result in further constraints. So some clerics say we have to be loyal to Britain or things will get worse. And others say, if we are loyal to Britain, things will get better. Okay? We have to become, if you will, a bulwark of British power. Um, the clergy is going to be very quickly joined in its loyalist zeal by the seigneurial class. The seigneurs of New France were sort of New France's gentry, if you will. And they're very quickly, they're going to join the clergy in preaching loyalty to Britain. There's sort of a sorting out that occurs in uh, the early 1760s among the clerical class. Some opt to leave the colony and remain faithful to France, but those who choose to stay, they decide to embrace British rule. I'm destined here, I'm gonna, I give you the original French and I'll translate in English. Uh, so I'm destined to live with the English Michel Gaspard Chartier de Lodbinière wrote to his father in 1786, My welfare is in their control. I depend entirely upon them. Consequently, my policy is to adapt myself to the circumstances. This is a... Chartier de Lodbinière is saying, basically, I have no choice. I'm loyal to the British because they're now our masters in the way the French once were. He's writing to his father. His father has returned to France. He has decided ultimately he is not going to swear allegiance to the British. And his son is explaining years later why he did this. Okay. Um, and in fact, Chartier de la Binière is going to distinguish himself in the defense of Fort Saint-Jean during the American Revolution. And he's going to become one of the leading political figures 
in Quebec. So that decision that he makes to swear allegiance to the British and then, in fact, fight for them against a rebellion, okay, that is based on his desire to be loyal to Britain and to continue to be part of the political order in Quebec. Uh, so in the 1760s, 1770s, you see two major groups that emerge as proponents of loyalism in French Canada and indeed that are the bulwarks of British power. Uh, loyalism was integral to nascent French-Canadian conservatism in the 1770s and is going to remain one of the hallmarks of conservative thought and writing in Quebec for over a century. So as conservatism as an idea emerges in Quebec in the 1760s and especially the 1770s, it is fundamentally loyalist and it will remain so for well over a century. Um, and that loyalism is going to intensify after the 1774 Quebec Act is going to expand Catholic rights and grant legal recognition to the seigneurial system. Um, and it's going to intensify further still during the American and French revolutions when the advantages, so to speak, of British rule became more readily apparent to many conservative figures was now, by the late 18th century, assumed that British power protected Quebec from annexation, from Quebec being annexed from this new republic that had emerged uh, to the south, and that the conquest had spared Quebec the horrors of the French Revolution. Okay, so that nascent loyalism of the 1760s, it intensifies quite significantly in the 1770s and especially in the 1790s. And clerical loyalism in particular is going to acquire a new dimension. It no longer simply reflected basic theological imperatives, this idea that God commands us to be loyal to Britain. It no longer simply reflects these basic theological calculations and also basic strategic calculations. Leading clerics increasingly regarded British power and institutions as a means to uphold conservative and the conservative and Catholic social order in Quebec. So by the 1790s, the clergy and the seigneur, but especially the clergy, now regard the British as allies <coughs> in holding back revolution and chaos, if you will. So now, paradoxically, the British have become allies in maintaining Catholicism in Quebec, in the eyes, at least, of the upper clergy. The rise of Napoleon in the early 19th century is going to further underscore the providential nature of the British conquest to many observers. Clerics begin to argue with increasing frequency that the conquest was part of a divine plan to preserve Catholicism in Quebec. <coughs> 1760, there certainly had been this idea that God had willed the conquest. But why? We don't know. Okay? Monseigneur Briand had said, basically, we, we don't know, but we accept God's command, if you will. Well, now there's this idea that perhaps God had a plan, and that the plan was, by making Quebec become part of the British Empire, this was God's way of preserving us from the French Revolution, of you know, regicide, deicide, etc., and the French, like the American rebels before them, are going to be portrayed in clerical discourse not only as agents of political mayhem, but also of religious and social disorder. And increasingly, official clerical documents are going to insist on the protective nature of British rule. Okay? Britain protects Quebec, protects religion in Quebec. Now, as uh, historian Jerry Bannister has noted, however, loyalty to the crown encompassed various political traditions in British North America. And it was not in any way synonymous with reaction. And in fact, by the turn of the 19th century, a liberal loyalism was fast developing among the French-Canadian bourgeoisie and, in fact, for a time, a loyalist consensus, if you will, characterize French Canada's middle and upper classes. 
1791 granting of representative government to lawyer, Lower Canada is going to help solidify this consensus. This reform, which was regarded as a fundamental British freedom, had been championed by leading French-Canadian merchants and professionals for the better part of a decade. And so you see liberal attachment to freedom and property, as well as to the rule of law and to individual rights, is now going to be partly expressed in the very late 18th and early 19th century. It's going to be expressed also uh, through a discourse of loyalty. Uh, moreover, by this time, Quebec had become fully integrated into the British imperial economy. Defense spending and grain exports are going to ensure that even Quebec's rural population is going to experience the economic benefits of British rule. So Quebec has become fully integrated economically into the British Empire. And now the, middle, the rising middle class in Quebec is also preaching loyalty to Britain. Perhaps a slightly different form of loyalty. Okay, a liberal form, but loyalty nevertheless. Uh, during the War of 1812, the protective nature of British rule was highlighted with great enthusiasm. British power was now regarded by leading clerics not only as integral to Lower Canadian order and stability, the British province of Quebec gets renamed Lower Canada in 1791. Right? And British power is now regarded by leading clerics not only as integral to Lower Canadian order and stability, but was also presented as a global force for order and righteousness, indeed as a bulwark against global radicalism. I've been uh, reading a great deal about British imperial history, and I don't see a lot of references to this. The idea in the 19th century that Britain acted in a way similar to the United States during the Cold War, that it was liberal values, uh, that it was protecting the world, in fact, against revolution and so on and so forth. But this idea comes up a great deal in Quebec. And I want to show you, again, I will translate as best I can. In 1812, Mardin, or at least the passage from it, which was issued at the prompting of Governor General Prévost of uh, Lower Canada. So it's a, a, a madma issued by Monsignor Plessis, the Bishop of Quebec, at the prompting of the uh, colonial governor, who says to Monsignor Plessis, the war has just broken out, you've got to issue a madma. And Monsignor Plessis does this uh, happily, Okay, in which he's going to praise God for Lower Canada's status as a British possession. So as part of this madma, he says, um, Perhaps, my dear brothers, at no other period before this one, have you ever felt, as you feel now, to what extent divine providence has been liberal towards us, or generous towards us, when it allowed us to become the subjects of a government, the British government, which is protecting our security, our religion, our fortunes of a government which alone has been able to maintain its honor and its glory in the wreckage of all of the other gover governments. It's a reference, of course, to the fact that crowns are falling all over Europe <laughs> as Napoleon is, is taking over. Of a government with which oppressed people and dethroned sovereigns and the nameless victims of ambition and perfidy of an insatiable uh, conqueror, Napoleon, have come to find, have come to take asylum, and have found ways to restore their stolen liberty or to defend that liberty which they still have. Okay? So Britain is standing up against Napoleon, against you know, madness, chaos, revolution, etc. And we should be so thankful that British power is protecting us, in fact. So this idea, Britain has become this global force for righteousness and for, if you will, counter-revolution. Uh, and French-Canadian loyalty, and I mean, in this madma, he makes fun of the Americans. He says they're inept, okay? We're going to beat them. It's practically a fatwa against the United States. Okay? Um, and in fact, French-Canadian loyalty is going to reach its high watermark in the immediate aftermath of the War of 1812. The loyalist consensus that had been formed in the previous generation is going to hold fast 
and is going to embrace not only leading conservative figures like Monsignor Plessis, but also future radicals like Louis-Joseph Papineau. And as a young political leader, in 1820, he's going to eulogize George III, who has just died, okay, in a speech to his voters. So this is a future rebel leader who is a nationalist hero today in Quebec. But at the beginning of his political career, he's in a speech praising George III and saying since the advent of British rule, since that day, he says, the rule of law is going to replace the rule of violence. Since that day, the wealth, the navy, and the armies of Great Britain have been put to contribution to give us an invincible protection against outside threats. Since that day, again, the, since the day of our conquest, the better part of British laws have become our own laws, while our religion, our property, and our laws, which govern religion and property, have remained intact. So this power Britain has come to protect us against outside threats. It has given us the best of its laws and allowed us to retain the best of our own laws. Okay. So again, 1820, now Joseph Papineau, Louis-Joseph Papineau's father had been exceptionally attached to Britain, and you see in the early 1820s, Papineau is as well. Right? But of course, this consensus, it could not hold. Pepineau and his followers become increasingly disillusioned with Britain in the 1820s and 1830s as London refused to move forward on political reform. Pepineau himself becomes very disillusioned with Britain after a visit to Britain. He's very shocked, for instance, at the social inequality that he sees in Britain. And the idea that Britain is a model for a lot of reformers, that begins to dissipate especially in the 1830s. So these reformers begin to turn away from the British model and increasingly begin to embrace American forms of government in the 1830s. And their radicalism, basically they move from being liberals to becoming republicans, if you will. And their radicalization is going to reach its summit in 1837-1838 when anti-colonial rebellions are going to occur in the <coughs> district of Montreal. The leading rebel, in fact, is Pepineau, even though he flees the province as the rebellion breaks out. The Roman Catholic Church is going to condemn the 1837-1838 rebels and is going to refuse them the sacraments. Uh, the church had previously disapproved of the growing radicalism of the Patriot, who had in fact for several years now been promoting the separation of church and state. And the radicalism of these Patriot, these reformers who had become radicalized in the 1830s, they bring the church to collaborate ever more closely to the British, with the British which in turn is going to increasingly alienate the clergy from its flock. Uh, loyalist sentiment in French Canada is going to diminish significantly in the 1830s as radicals depicted Britain as corrupt and oppressive. And, of course, attachment to Britain, loyalism, is going to diminish further still after the British authorities suppress the lower Canadian rebellions. So it was not a large-scale rebellion. There were only off the top of my head, about 250 people that die, but it is accompanied with you know, military and political repression. A number of villages in southwestern Quebec are burned, um, and especially um, the British are going to unite Upper and Lower Canada into a single colony. So Lower Canada ceases to exist after 1840 as a separate political entity, and all of this together you know, the radicalization of the 1830s and these events, 1837, 38, and 1840, they're going to strike a very significant blow uh, to loyalism. Uh, and in fact, even clerical loyalty is going to diminish after the rebellions. Uh, this can be attributed in part to the 1840 Act of Union, which the clergy abhorred and lobbied against, but it was also the result of actions taken by the special council of Lower Canada. This was an entity set up by Britain in the wake of these rebellions to administer Lower Canada. Uh, it was not 
uh, elected. Okay? Uh, and this special council is going to, in fact, confirm the title of the church's extensive property. So the intensity of loyalist sentiment is going to diminish along with the church's sense of vulnerability in the face of power. So the British have done, if you will, a bad thing. Okay? They have violently repressed a rebellion. They have united Upper and Lower Canada. But they've also, from the point of view of the church, done a good thing. They have recognized the church's property. So for both reasons, clerical loyalty is going to diminish. Partly, as I say, because now the church doesn't have to be as loyal as it used to. That coercion element is not as strong. But at the, at the same time, the sense of attachment to Britain did not disappear from clerical discourse until well into the 20th century. The clergy continued to view British rule and especially to view British institutions as bulwarks against radicalism and revolution. And in fact, the clergy was not isolated in its loyalism even after the rebellions. Reformers like Louis-Hippolyte Lafontaine and Étienne Pascal Taché, who had refused to follow Papineau down the road to armed conflict, they continued to praise British forms of government in the 1840s. Those uh, reformers who had not become rebels in 1837, 1838, they continued to preach loyalty to Britain and to praise British forms of government. Uh, they're going to lay the groundwork for the emergence of the Conservative Party in French Canada. And they're going to find themselves called to cabinet once Britain granted responsible government to Canada in 1848. So loyalism is very much tied to conservatism in French Canada. And as a conservative party emerges in French Canada in the late 1840s, early 1850s, again, loyalism is part of its doctrines. Um, now, the advent of responsible government in 1848 is going to remove a significant inducement to loyalism. Most offices no longer required official British patronage. But conservative figures could now boast that Canada enjoyed the full extent of British representative government. The colony also enjoyed the benefits of British preferential trade until the late 1840s, when the advent of free trade in Britain forced Canada to seek expanded commercial opportunities in the United States. Uh, clerical loyalism also intensified during the turbulent 1860s, when annexation to the United States and the possibility of American aggression brought many clerics to acclaim Canada's imperial ties and to support Confederation, which we're celebrating the centennial of this year. However, by creating a provincial state in which French Canadians formed a majority of the population, Confederation at the same time somewhat lessened the utility of loyalist discourse. So with the advent of a French Canadian province in Quebec and the advent of responsible government in 1848, you don't need to ingratiate yourself to the British as much to achieve power, if you will. Uh, loyalist sentiment nevertheless remained strong among French-Canadian elites. It continued to play an important role in fostering relations with English-speaking Canadians, and it reflected the continued importance of British trade and investment to Quebec's economy. You also see in the late 19th century the re-emergence of a liberal loyalism in French Canada, as Wilfrid Laurier, the future Prime Minister of Canada, is going to seek to reorient the Liberal Party towards British liberalism and to marginalize the Liberal Party's radical or Republican wing, which was hostile to monarchy and to clericalism. They're referred to as the Rouge, the Reds. Right? And Laurier had in his youth been a Rouge, right? not at all attached to British institutions, attached to Republican institutions. Sometimes, in fact, some of these rouges are favorable to annexation to the United States. But as Laurier matures as a political leader, he understands that for the Liberal Party to achieve power, he's got to purge the party of les rouges. And he does this, slowly but surely. He does this by saying, our liberalism is not radical. We, in fact, as a party, embrace British forms of freedom. 
Lerier is going to be quite successful in that by the early 20th century, there really isn't a strong Republican movement left in French Canada. Um, and this is going to play an important role in the decline of loyalism. Why? Because without a, a vigorous radical challenge, the clergy and the conservative elites no longer sought a bulwark in British rule and in British political institutions. Okay? Without that radical threat, the threat of you know, rebellion, of uh, republicanism, and so on and so forth, you don't necessarily feel you have to praise Britain, praise British institutions nearly as much. Debates surrounding the nature of political institutions diminished significantly in Quebec, and loyalism, in a sense, lost much of its relevance. But the death blow to loyalism is going to occur as a result of rising imperialist sentiment in Canada. Canada and Great Britain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The French-Canadian press had generally praised British imperialism before the 1890s. But British calls for imperial assistance during the Boer War, during the naval arms race uh, with Germany, and especially during the First World War, these are going to be regarded by many French-Canadian uh, figures as disruptive of the imperial status quo. Britain is supposed to protect us. It's not our job to go and protect Britain. It's upending the imperial relationship or the imperial status quo. And in fact, Quebec's modern nationalist movement was born during the debate surrounding Canada's participation in the Boer War. The rise in imperialist sentiment was accompanied, moreover, by a movement outside Quebec, or in the provinces outside of Quebec, to suppress French and Catholic education. Sectarian and language tensions increased significantly at the turn of the 20th century. And French-Canadian appeals for British fair play, this came up a lot, we want British fair play, these were often rebuffed with calls for Canada to fully embrace its British destiny. Uh, the decline of British trade and investment after the Great War and the advent of Canadian independence are going to further diminish loyalism's relevance. The doctrine did not immediately disappear, however. Uh, Senator uh, Thomas Chappé, who you see here, recently written a book about him, hasn't been published yet, so... Uh, Senator uh, Thomas Chappé is going to publish his monumental Cours d'Histoire du Canada, which updated the idea of a providential conquest during the interwar years. So he is a historian, also a political leader, and he certainly believed that the British conquest of Quebec had been divinely ordained and ultimately a very good thing. But Chappé's thesis regarding British rule, which would have been generally accepted at the turn of the 20th century, was now by the interwar years regarded with a great deal of criticism, most notably from a rising nationalist movement led by Lionel Groux. Uh, loyalist platitudes were occasionally trotted out by French-Canadian political leaders during royal visits in the 1950s, but even that had ceased by the Quiet Revolution. In the meantime, loyalism's role as a doctrine favorable to the political status quo had been assumed, if you will, by federalism in Quebec. Loyalism did not transform itself into federalism, but the two doctrines rested on similar reasoning, and they drew support from similar sources, from the business community, from the military, from Laval University, from French language minority groups outside of Quebec, etc. Now, for over a century, French Canadian loyalists articulated a vision of Britishness that was essentially civic in character. You see here, this is actually a protest against the government of Ontario's banning of French language education in 1912. This picture was taken somewhere very close to uh, where I live in Ottawa. And the students are holding up a sign saying, we want, essentially, what do we want? British fair play, please. Okay. Uh, and as I say, French-Canadian loyalists, they articulated a vision of Britishness that was essentially civic in character. 
Henri Bourassa, the nationalist leader, for instance, was fond of referring to Canada as a British community, by which he meant that the Dominion of Canada was an Anglo-French state whose fundamental institutions and liberties were British in nature. He believed, moreover, and I quote him, that the very basis of our British institutions rests not on racial or religious precepts, but rather on the idea that there shall be perfect equality before the law for all nationalities and for all religions, end quote. This conception of Britishness, which was very strong in French Canada, was not widely shared um, among English-speaking Canadians, who tended to regard Canada's status as a British community as implying that the Dominion was to be Protestant and English-speaking, that it was to be a nation whose leading citizens should be of British birth or ancestry. And this, this logic was deployed relentlessly during the Jesuit estates controversy of the 1880s and also during the school crises uh, in Manitoba and Ontario. So that by the end of the First World War, it had become painfully evident in Quebec that civic notions of Britishness were not likely to prevail in Canada. And loyalist sentiment withered accordingly. It's hard to be attached to a people who claim to, in a sense, hate you. Um, So, you know, loyalist sentiment, it withers because... English and French-speaking Canadians, when they talk about loyalty to Britain, it expresses very different things in the 18th and 19th century. Loyalism was a very complex phenomenon. It responded to numerous factors, including the importance of British trade and investment to Quebec's economy. If I made sort of an imaginary chart showing the intensifying and lessening of loyalism in French Canada, it would more or less follow another graph of the rise and fall of British trade and investment in Canada. There's no doubt about that. It was also primarily a doctrine of the middle and upper classes. The royal visits and celebrations could certainly generate enthusiasm among the general population. Uh, But even among the clergy, loyalism appears to have been more intense among the higher clergy, especially among bishops, than it was among ordinary parish priests. Loyalist sentiment also appears to have been much stronger in the Quebec City region than in the Montreal area, likely for reasons related to Quebec City's stronger economic ties to Britain, but also as a result of its more moderate political and intellectual culture. Uh, Loyalism and nationalism could in fact go hand in hand. The church, for instance, issued loyalist madmans, while simultaneously resisting British attempts to assimilate the Catholic population. In some loyalist texts, praise for Britain was sometimes followed by scorn for British colonists. Um, and if you read Chappé's called Squabs du Canada, the British are great, but English-speaking Canadians are terrible people. Um, And indeed, some of the greatest threats to loyalist sentiment in French Canada could be found in the actions of Canada's Protestant and English-speaking population. Now, as historian C.A. Bailey has noted, uh, quote, the creation of colonies was never simply a question of domination. It involved a long process of political dialogue, of challenge and response, and of accommodation. Loyalism played a key role in fostering the wider adaptation of French Canadians to British rule and especially to British institutions. British power and institutions were accepted and indeed often embraced because they served the interests of various groups within French-speaking society. For the Roman Catholic Church, loyalism was strategic, reflecting the institution's vulnerability in the face of British power, but it also at the same time proceeded from genuine belief. Many ultra-loyalist mandements were issued, it's true, at the prompting of the British authorities, to be sure. But the available evidence generally indicates that these requests were acceded to with enthusiasm and indeed that their content was sincere. And the depth of this sincerity becomes evident after the Special Council of Lower Canada solidified the legal status of the church's property 
And again, when responsible governments significantly diminished the power of the British authorities over Canadian affairs. The bishops of Quebec were not compelled to issue calls for loyalty in the 1860s. They did so because they genuinely believed that British power and institutions had become integral to the preservation of Quebec's Catholic social order. Uh, if loyalism emerged because British power was found to serve the interests of various groups within French Canada, the doctrine correspondingly diminished when Britain threatened or became irrelevant to those same groups. The reformists of the Parti Canadien championed British rule in the wake of the 1791 granting of responsible government. But their radical heirs, the patriots of the 1830s, the patriotes, they denounced Great Britain when the colonial authorities refused to move forward on further reform. Likewise, the Roman Catholic Church celebrated the British conquest in the 18th and 19th centuries when radicals posed a real threat to established order. But once the Republican menace faded away in the early 20th century, the need to praise monarchical government diminished accordingly. Loyalism died a very slow death, which speaks to its long-standing relevance within French-Canadian thought. But it did eventually disappear, no doubt because it became politically, economically, and socially irrelevant. It also disappeared became, because it became symbolically irrelevant. Loyalism expressed a desire among French-Canadian elites for Quebec to find a place within the British Empire. In this effort, however, Loyalists advocated a vision or a conception of Britishness that was doomed to fail, not because it did not appeal to ordinary French Canadians, which it did, but because it was not ultimately embraced by their English-speaking fellow citizens. Thank you.